0: People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil. Smells like anything you think could happen, probably will. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today.
1: This is Pod Save the UK.
0: I'm Coco Khan.
1: And I'm Nish Kumar.
0: This week, we're saving the UK from pig-bothering former Prime Ministers.
1: And poison pen letter-writing former Home Secretaries.
0: Plus, we'll be joined by LBC presenter James O'Brien, a man who's been called the conscience of liberal Britain.
1: As opposed to me, who's been called the man who absolutely ruined Britain. No regrets. (laughs) Hi, Coco.
0: Hi, Nish.
1: Suella Braverman out of a job. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Rwanda plan declared unlawful by the courts. Andre 3000's got a new album coming out. It's a <laughs> Diwali miracle. The whole week has been... A th- it was Diwali over the weekend. Happy Diwali to all Pod Save the UK listeners. Festival of light in Hinduism. And the light has shone through. Yes, yeah. there are heavy caveats for that. Zuella <laughs> Braverman's lost her job, which means she's probably going to end up being leader of the Conservative Party the next time that there's a leadership contest. Uh, the Rwanda plan uh, has been stalled by the courts, but that probably means Rishi Sunak's going to try and take us out of various international legislative agreements. And the Andre 3000 album is experimental jazz flute. <laughs> so there are caveats to all of those things. But at the moment, I, I on occasion, you have correctly castigated me for an excess of negativity. So this week I'm full of sunshine. <laughs> fuck Suella, fuck Sunak and his R- Rwanda plan. And Andre 3000 is back. That's
0: amazing. That's great
1: news for me. What a
0: beautiful week.
1: Our inbox this week has been full of hat chat. Yeah. Because last week you coined the phrase news hat. Yeah. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, please listen to last week's episode. It was very good. But if you didn't listen to last week's episode and you're wondering what does that mean? None of us know either. Coco just used the phrase news hat. (laughs) Uh, and our inbox has looked like the inbox of a milliners with the amount yeah, of yeah, yeah. hat-based conversation. Uh, this is from at uh, seabish, that's S-E-A-B-I-C-H, which I really enjoy. <laughs> uh, uh, they've tried to sort of work out what different items of clothing relate to in terms of news. So we've got News Hat is the top news stories, yeah. News Belt is middling news stories, and News Socks are the lighter side. Um, at Jay Webster one two six has said, a hat is the last piece of clothing you're putting on your head as you go out the door. A news hat is obviously the last story of the program to leave on a happy note. The nice. news hat is the end, finally. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's it's your nice. moment of zen. Oh, I'm so, like, touched that the listeners have written in to be like, no, no, don't worry. It's okay, Coco. You're not just a rambling mad woman staggering through life, confused and (laughs) shouting at clouds about news hats. We understand you.
1: so nice. Someone called At Snug with 4Gs has said a news hat must be made from a copy of any of that day's newspapers. (laughs) Okay. And At Vulcan Nerd, again, these... Usernames are all sensational. At Vulcan Nerd has said, whatever the news hat is, I demand that Coco wear it in the next episode. So, I
0: actually take back what I said. These these listeners are on my side. <laughs> <laughs> They're on my side. Oh. Are you
1: not going to wear a news a, hat in the you, next I, episode?
0: No, I am not going to wear a, a, a paper hat made of yesterday's newspaper.
1: I'm just realising as we're having this conversation that I did a photo shoot for... Uh, the Observer, which is the Sunday edition of yeah. the Guardian newspaper, and I wore a hat made of newspapers. That <laughs> I wore like a paper hat. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. there's an image of me with a uh, wearing a literal news hat, and that has it hadn't occurred okay, to me until okay. literally so this minute. All this
0: time, you've been making fun of me about a so-called news hat, and you have a news hat. The holidays are coming up. It's time to get festive, whether you like it or not. To help you get the holiday vibes going, the Crooked Store has brand new goodies to deck out your tree and wrap up under it.
1: What better way to say thank God 2023 is almost over than with an indictment-inspired ornament to remember this year by.
0: Get jolly with some new and best-selling holiday sweaters and tees, perfect for the family holiday party, where you know your conservative cousin is going to corner you and talk about the plight of millionaires.
1: Head to crooked.com forward slash store to shop now.
0: What a week it's been. There's lots more to be said about Cameron Braverman and the fallout from the reshuffle to end all reshuffles. But our top story is that the government's £140 million plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda, the central plank in their stop-the-boats policy, now lies in tatters after the Supreme Court ruled it to be unlawful. Here's Rishi Sunak trying to put a brave face on it at Prime Minister's questions.
1: This morning also the Supreme Court gave a judgement on the Rwanda plan. They confirmed that the principle of removing asylum seekers to a safe third country is lawful. There are further elements that they want additional certainty on and noted changes and noted that changes can be delivered in the future to address those issues. The government has been working already on a new treaty with Rwanda and we will finalize that in light of today's judgment and furthermore if necessary, I am prepared to revisit our domestic legal frameworks. Let me assure the House my commitment to stopping the boats is unwavering. Yeah. So. Obviously, I mean, he's just being openly laughed at in the comments. But it, there's a lot more to talk about this, but let's just get straight into it with today's guest, the journalist, author and broadcaster James O'Brien, who was just hot-footed it uh-huh. over from doing a show uh, at LBC, uh, which is the most popular talk show on British commercial radio. Apparently so, Nesh, apparently <laughs> so.
0: His new book called How They Broke Britain is a damning account of how the country ended up in this current mess.
1: Welcome to Pod Save the UK, James. Thank you for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to see you. Let's just go straight in on this. Mm. So this is... This is a bit the flagship policy that has sort of crashed and burned a couple of times. kind yeah. of.
2: I, I mean, no, not in any meaningful sense of yeah. the word policy, actually, because the, the the more you dig into it, the more you look at what's happened today, you remember that it was Boris Johnson that started it. You see, yeah. with Pretty Patel in the Home Office, which means it's a Boris Johnson-style policy, which means it was never actually designed to deliver anything substantive or meaningful. Um, when they were presented with this real problem, uh, or, or the, their problem with small boats, so we can't fix it, but we can't admit we can't fix it. So we we've got to say something, I know, let's deport them all to Rwanda. Johnson would have been happy with that because his job was only ever to get through the next news cycle and then the next bucket of crap that landed on his desk he'd deal with in exactly the same way. What's weird is that Sunak, I guess, stuck with it when I I suppose politically he had no choice. But read it, it's not really a ruling or it's certainly not a judgment in a technical definition of the word because all all the, all the, the Supreme Court has done is remind everybody what the law is. Yeah. And under that reading, it was never going to go, get, get put through.
0: Do you think secretly they might be pleased about this ruling? Because now they have a reason not to enact it. It would have cost too much. It's not workable, not really. And they have a, a whipping boy, you know, those lefty judges. Yeah,
2: mm, enemies of the people. I, I think if 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 it hadn't gone so far, they might have derive some solace from that. But it, it made it categorically clear that even if we'd somehow extricated ourselves from the European Convention on Human Rights, we would still be breaking all sorts of international law by trying to send people to a country adjudged to be unsafe. So there's, there's 50 odd of them, Tory MPs and a couple of Ulster Unionists who've already, the mandate was introduced earlier this year, they've already said, well, let's get rid of all the laws. Let's get rid of the torture one. Let's get rid of the United Nations Convention on Torture. Let's get rid of the United Nations Convention on Refugees. And these are the things that were put in place in, in in the 1950s to prevent another holocaust. And I saw Ian Duncan Smith and certainly some other Tories in characteristically smug and arrogant fashion insisting that the policy was something quite different from what it actually was. So a lot of people who supported it believed, for example... That an asylum seeker would go to Rwanda, have their application process there according to British law, and then, mm. if success, successful, come back yeah. and live here as someone who had been granted asylum. But in fact, it's not that at all. If if it is, it, you apply to the Rwandan system of asylum, and if you fail, God knows what happens to you. But if you succeed, you stay in Rwanda for the rest of your life. So, so many people who thought they supported it were not even supporting the scheme. As it was, even I, I say even I because I do this for a living, I didn't realise that it was the Rwandan asylum application system that would be applied to everybody we shipped there and we sort of wash our hands of it. And as you say, it's already been shown that the Rwandan asylum application system has a long record of sending people back to countries where they have suffered torture or, or, or persecution. its I mean, it's, it's just bonkers. It's par- this is really geeky. It's paragraph 56 of the court's ruling today that shows you, or at least a very obliquely but but obviously suggests, that ministers were being told constantly, 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 constantly right. that this was not going to work and that this mm-hmm. was the almost inevitable. And they knew that. And accidentally, in her mad post-sacking uh, letter, Suella Braverman kind of gave the game away when she said to Rishi Sunak, and you haven't done this, and you haven't done that, and you haven't done this, when all of those things were things that would need to have been done in order to circumvent the law that has been... Re re, re, uh, enforced today, or or, or we've been reminded of today.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect point to bring up, Suella's bout of intellectual diarrhea. I mean, it's promised uh, a lot of, uh, you know, bits of information. It's suggested that uh, it's hinted that she has some evidence that Sunak has Mm. gone back on promises that he's made. But was it possible to read that letter as anything other than the starting gun for her campaign to be the next leader of the Tory party?
2: Well, I mean, it, you could read it, I suppose, as the the finishing line for any vestiges of credibility that she possessed. It was a sort of screeching, hateful, vitriolic um uh, rallying cry, wasn't it, for the maddest members, the lunatic fringe of the mm. lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe of the Tory party. And as such, it was it was probably quite effective. But the question for some time now, for a couple of parliaments, has been how big is that lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe? And I, and I, I don't think it gets close to triple figures. So I'm not quite sure what she's doing. She's only fifth on the... Um, approval ratings of the conservative party membership so she's not doing a truss or or a, or a, or a badinock and wooing the party faithful with mm. a sort of combination of delusion and and dishonesty so that's not working she's alienated um the population 70% of whom thought Rishi Sunak did the right thing by sacking her it's arguably and you need to check this, it might be the most popular thing Rishi Sunak has ever done. That's exactly
0: what I was going to say. I was like, oh, I thought this actually might play really well. Yeah. Although having seen him just then in PMQs, where he, he kind of said, actually, you know, I, I stand by everything. Yeah. And they're not far off, you know. Um, we, we, what
1: he said there was, she didn't dump me. It was mutual. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here's the thing. I just wonder if I'm just really burned by the last decade and a half where the hard right of the Tory party, and in fact, the hard right of British politics, full stop, wants something to happen, everybody says it's definitely not going to happen, and then it happens. Mm. And it starts with hacking the state to the bone through an austerity programme that we're still counting the cost of. Brexit, the Prime Ministership of Boris Johnson, these are all things that start on the hard right of British politics or the hard right of the Conservative Party and then end up happening. So again, I now assume that Richie Sunak is going to try and circumvent international law and then suella Suella bradman's going to be prime minister and then by as such am i guilty of overstating the power that this bright wing fringe still has
2: no i mean not least because of course they have the full throated support of of most of the newspapers Mm. still and and that that is why the the momentum you describe can build despite the fact that there's a lack initially of popular support
0: um so let's get on to your book then Mm. james how they broke britain So it has a chapter on 10 individuals that you've singled out as being responsible for breaking Britain. I mean, just in this conversation here, we've spoken about a lot of very bad people. Yes, we have. Um, How did you whittle it down? It was really easy.
2: It was really easy. I wasn't sure it would be. Initially, it was going to be called The Men Who Broke Britain, but then hmm, Liz Truss happened. So I had to give her a chapter, albeit it's a very short chapter. For obvious reasons. Well, I identify three engines, and we've touched on two of them already. You've got the mad far-right element of the Tory party, which Mm -hmm. isn't really an element anymore. They're in charge, have been since they got rid of Theresa May, really. Um, and then you've got the right-wing newspapers. So you've got Murdoch's empire, you've got Paul Dacre's Daily Mail empire, and then you've got The Telegraph, which is the maddest of them all, actually. They're the ones that run comment pieces saying things like, quasi Kwateng's budget is the finest budget yeah. of my lifetime. With no consequences, you don't get punished a week later when the economy's been driven off a cliff. And then the third element of it, which I think is possibly the least understood or the least obvious, is, is this coterie, a very incestuous network of Um, uh, lobby groups, secretly funded lobby groups, essentially operating shilling for big business, whether it's tobacco or or banking or um, uh, junk food manufacturers, just wealth, really, Mm. wealth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they call themselves think tanks. And and they, of course, pop up all over the place with fancy names that are completely made up, like Institute of Economic Affairs or Centre for Policy Studies. And they've got no more qualification to talk about any of this stuff than the average school leaver has in in most cases. And yet they've managed to infiltrate every single lever of the British media putting forward precisely the same bogus free market
1: ideology that what used to be the lunatic fringe of the Tory party promote. I hadn't expected to discuss this with you at all, given his return to prominence. But let's start with David Cameron. I don't think any of us expected to be here uh, discussing David Cameron, Foreign Secretary. On Monday, Coco and I did a kind of um, bonus podcast, Um, although bonus normally means something good has happened. Yeah, I
0: know, I know, I know. (laughs) We did a
1: reverse bonus episode uh, to cover the um, uh, return of Cameron. Um, Just just because I can't think there's a clip that summarises David Cameron's political career better, let's just remind ourselves what the actor and modern philosopher Danny Dyer uh, said of David Cameron after he quit after the Brexit referendum.
0: So what's
2: happened to that twat, David Cameron, oh. who called it on? <laughs> Let's be fair. Oh. I think what? you're referring no to no. a former no Prime no.
1: Yeah, but what? how comes he can scuttle off? He called all this on. Mm.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: He, he has on. no regrets it? Where is he?
1: He's in Europe, in Nice, with his <laughs> trotters up. Yeah? Where is the geezer? I
2: think you should be held account Actually, for it. Know it know should be held you know account for it. It's a valid point. A lot of people do feel... Twat. That, that... <laughs> it's the second twat. It's the second twat. <laughs> it's
0: the second
1: twat. It's a
2: double twatting.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> perfect. Each of the chapters yes. starts with a, a quote. A very erudite Ill- quote. It's going to be illustrative of yes. the content of the chapter, and you picked the Daddy die quote.
2: No contest.
1: But he, so he said that in 2018, and... at the time I didn't think it was possible that there'd be a better epitaph for his political career what do you make of the comeback of David Cameron?
2: It's hard to see what's in it for Rishi Sunak I I presume some sort of hope that there'll be a political osmosis Cameron won one and a half elections one with an outright majority and one which saw him go into coalition. There is, again, largely because our print media is so bent, there is a perception that he was good at stuff, Mm -hmm. although I think that one Labour MP today asked Sunak to mention a foreign policy triumph that David Cameron had delivered and and they, they couldn't because but the,
1: he said he organised he organised a very good G8 that summit. Was it, yeah. That was it. It's that not was incredible. Office of it's it's not incredible. It's G8. Lovely I'd
2: say we had some lovely canapés yeah. uh, It was the best it was the best sandwiches <laughs> of that G8 seriously you shouldn't have missed that G8. From Cameron's point of view I think uh, quite happily for me the chapter makes it perfectly clear why he thinks he's perfectly suited to come in and be foreign secretary because he still thinks he's a genius. He still thinks he's some sort of political sage.
0: But how can he think that after, well, I mean, there's, there's too many mistakes to name. Yes. I mean, obviously, austerity, Libya. But I do want to focus on Greensill. Yes. Because...
2: Oh, no, no, no. That's all been de- dealt with, Kote. <laughs> Sorry. If you're not, have you not been paying attention? I've, I've answered all these questions before. That's all been dealt with entirely to my
1: satisfaction.
0: Yeah, yeah. That was weird, it was like he was in the room. That's what he does, that's
1: <laughs> what he does. After, uh, just in case there are listeners that don't know about this, and there may well be, because it it, it doesn't seem to... Because be of the newspapers! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, Greensill was a company that Cameron was uh, working for after he uh, left office and left politics, we thought. Um, and during the pandemic, he was uh, found to have been lobbying on their behalf to get pandemic relief money, including correspondences with the then-Chancellor Rishi Sunak. And uh, a Treasury Committee report found that he hadn't broken any of the rules, but only because the rules were wholly inadequate. Yeah, pretty and much. It actually suggested that we, we need to actually revisit the right. conduct of p- people who have been Prime Minister. He didn't get any of the loans, but Sunak was... Good. I, I think it's fair to say he was getting the
2: kind of personal responses yes. from Rishi Sunak that yeah. the rest of us might struggle yeah. to have secured during that
1: time. And, but, and, and, but, and also big question marks over Cameron's links with China as well. well. That's, I think, even bigger potentially on the, on the, on the sort of world stage. Yeah. Um, Starmer went in very hard uh, on those China links at PMQs today. Here's a clip.
2: A few months ago, the Intelligence and Security Committee said that the now Foreign Secretary's role in a Chinese investment fund may have been, and this is their words, engineered by the Chinese state. I hardly need to remind the Prime Minister of the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party or the intimidation against members of this House. So when will he instruct the Foreign Secretary to give full public disclosure of his work for Chinese interests?
0: So I just want to ask you, do you think he's fit to be Foreign Secretary?
2: Um, well, without the full disclosure that Keir Starmer has just called for, or without proper accountability for the, for the millions of pounds that he took from Greensill shortly before it went bust, um, I'm not sure he is actually, but this is very much the theme of the book: the the, the old standards, the old requirements, the the most basic sort mm. of uh, checks and balances on on power have have just completely disappeared. They've been completely torched. He's not by some distance the most egregious offender, but you know, puts you in mind of the Russia report that Boris Johnson sort of tried to keep under the sofa, and just lots of other and the, and the Privileges Committee deciding that Johnson was in contempt of parliament. And then half a dozen Tory MPs came out and attacked the Privileges Committee. Mm-hmm. And when Owen Paterson was found to have yeah. lobbied against the rules, traditionally, you take your medicine, you know, you take your punishment like a man, they would say, in those circles. But they didn't. They they, they all banded together, Johnson, Rees-Mogg, Charles Moore, and a, and, and a few others, and they formed the Save Owen Paterson Society. So at some point between 2016 and now, these people became morally corrupt and and when one of their own is caught out they don't just afford impunity they try to tear up the actual rule book which is what, what they did with Patterson so I'm not sure Cameron is fit but in the current climate he's supremely qualified.
0: Just on that because you know something we talk a lot about on this podcast is of course you know individuals should be held to account but it's worthwhile trying to analyse the structures and the systems in which certain behaviours are incentivized, because you can take the player off the, the pitch but if another player will just come Mm. on, right? It's like a Hydra. And I wondered Mm. why you decided to single out names because you could have done a chapter on, I don't know, whatever, corruption or a chapter on whatever, but you you decided to pick people. Why was that?
2: I think it's really important that people are reminded of their actions and I think there's too much of what you've just described. There's there's too much of sort of ducking the issue. I'll give you a really good example. Um, Alex Chalk. The Justice Secretary has just tweeted before I arrived here today about the importance of the rule of law. and that is directed at Lee Anderson, mm. the Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party, who, as we discussed a moment ago, has invited the British public to pick and choose which laws they think should be obeyed and which ones shouldn't. But he doesn't say so. Chalk it, it, it leaves it in the margins and Mm. and i i don't want to leave it in the margins i want to hang it around their necks you know but what paul dacre has done to this country with, with regard to racism and immigration and everything from single mothers to to benefits claimants to food banks is is just disgusting it is objectively and historically vile so i don't just want to say the problem with news editors i want to say the problem with this bastard who was the editor of the daily mail during that, period, During that period, until, now the, until he's, he's now the, now the editor editor-in-chief in chief of the Mail Group, but he's always yeah. had his, his um, uh, he's always had his hand on all of the uh, driving wheels, all of the steering wheels of all of the papers until that brief hiatus when Boris Johnson tried to make him chairman of Ofcom, yeah, um, yeah. and indeed put him in the House of Lords. But it's, that's when Paul Dacre smashes into the reality that I try to describe in the book, because they've created this ecosystem, but we've still got some another reason for hope, Nish. We've still got some. Protection from the corruption because the House of Lords Appointments Committee uh, and the Ofcom Selection Panel (laughs) looked at Paul Dacre and decided no, 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 no. In much the same way that Wikipedia looked at the Daily Mail and decided to um, remove its designation as a trusted news source. But if you live in this country, if you live in this ecosystem, most of this stuff you won't have realised because it's happened incrementally and in plain sight. Again, we should say Ofcom is the regulator for the whole of the British media. Really. Broadcast yeah. media. It would be the internet as well. And he apparently doesn't even have a computer.
0: One thing I would say about this book is that you kind if you follow the news media, you kind of know all of it, but there's mm. something about the power of it all being put together. So even just then, you reminded me about the Ofcom, uh, mm. Paul Dacre. I forgot about that. I'd erased it from my mind because there's just too much to keep up with.
2: It's almost an attempt to to have the entire media reflecting your own warped, worldview so so you know where does dissent come from well it doesn't come from any of the places that we've talked about it doesn't come from the telegraph or the mail or the times but times a little bit although that's getting worse because the bloke who edits the times now used to edit the telegraph used to edit the sun and used to be deputy editor of the daily mail I i don't think people fully appreciate how incestuous this all is i honestly think they look at the BBC at Channel 4 um, and and to a lesser extent at Ofcom and think, well, if we can just get them scared as well, then there'll be nothing to challenge our yeah. unleavened diet of... Propaganda and 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 othering. Paul Dacre doesn't think it's propaganda. He honestly mm. is terrified of all the things he tells his readers to be yeah, terrified right. of. But the rest of them are doing it cynically. Murdoch is doing it cynically for commercial reasons, and they hate the BBC for two reasons. Number one, it can offer up an alternative to the diet of propaganda and hate. And number two, they're not making any money out of it.
0: Yeah. yeah. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen, Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV, only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com.
1: talked a lot about the individual politicians mm. that are kind of enacting a lot of these policies. We've talked a lot about the press that amplifies their perspectives on things, and that kind of allows austerity to go unchecked for years and years, and now nobody can get a- an ambulance or see their doctor. Mm. Can we talk a little bit now about lobby groups? This is the bit that most people will be least aware yes, of, aside definitely. from seeing them pop up on news programmes yeah. where they're interviewed. And You devote a whole chapter to Matthew Elliott. So... You briefly kind of summarised his career as being think tank, vote leave. He's
2: my totem, if you like, for the much broader problem, the much broader malaise, because probably the Institute of Economic Affairs is the best example of, of how awful this world is. But because he set up vote leave and because Cummings gets a chapter, I thought there was a sort of narrative symmetry to giving him the nod. But what they do, and what was remarkable actually, and I couldn't believe this, is I found a book by a bloke called Madsen Piri who set up something called the Adam Smith Institute 30 or 40 years ago, which does exactly the same job as the Centre for Policy Studies, the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Taxpayers Alliance. They, they just represent the interests of wealth while pretending to be profoundly academic and authoritative. And he actually wrote an autobiography called, I think it was even called Think Tank. And in this autobiography, he, he, he gave the game away. He, he said, when we first started out, we'd all meet on Saturday nights in the Cork and Bottle Wine Bar in Leicester Square. And there'd be me from the Adam Smith Institute and maybe a colleague from there. There'd be a couple of the guys from the Institute of Economic Affairs, a couple of leader writers from the, from the Telegraph and, and maybe from the Times, a couple of special advisors from the Conservative Party, maybe a couple of uh, you know up-and-coming young MPs. And we would sit there on Saturday nights and discuss how we were going to help set the agenda for the week ahead, and they'd end up with the journalists writing the articles that they wanted to write. At the same time, Andrew Neil was editing the Sunday Times and was putting pamphlets published by the Institute of Economic Affairs in the newspaper as if they were news, particularly uh, a, a character called Charles Murray, who was very much into the underclass. He was constantly writing about the underclass and suggesting even that um, single mothers should have their children taken away by the state and put into kind of um, orphanages or, or, or put out for adoption by more middle-class couples, more middle-class families, and all all this was percolating. And Piri writes, um, he he, he details the extent of their media, their print media influence, and then writes, quite a poignant line I found, which is something like, but, but of course we had no ins whatsoever into broadcast. And now you cannot turn on Question Time or the Daily Politics or or even my own radio station, not not on my watch, but on what programmes presented by perfectly decent people. Producers need to book someone to put forward a a certain position and time is short Mm. and they will book someone from one of these outfits and... um, Civitas is another one, was even part of the Institute of Economic Affairs. It just hived off because I think they realised about 15 years ago that the more names we've got, the more different names we've got, even though we're all in the same building, effectively, or certainly in the same tiny little corner of Westminster circle centred on Tufton Street, which has become a, a byword for this um, for this network, it, it, the more names we've got, the more programmes we'll appear on, even though we're all singing from exactly the same hymn sheet. Yeah. They can't have someone on today from that outfit if it's got the same name as the outfit that the fellow was on from yesterday. So let's all give each other, let's all have different names. And, and Shamir Sani, who, who history will judge very warmly, a very brave, very brave young man who blew the whistle on the mm, vote yeah. leave law-breaking. Yeah. He, he then segued after Brexit over to the Taxpayers' Alliance and, and detailed the modern equivalent of Madsen Peary's meetings in the cork and bottle uh, Wine when he talked about the what his lawyers later described as the nine entities, so nine separate organisations, all ostensibly different, meeting every couple of weeks uh, under the same roof and discussing. One has to presume. Well, one doesn't have to presume. One knows discussing how they were going to help set the agenda for the fortnight ahead.
0: Before we started talking, you uh, mentioned like Christmas sales of the book, and I just thought, well, that would be an unhappy Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> reading
1: all of it, Yes. <laughs> um, but
0: obviously, you know... Buy it for angle. someone you hate. <laughs> yeah.
1: We should talk briefly about the kind of outlier in the book, which is Jeremy Corbyn, which I f- sort of found a strange inclusion, only because... Uh, I'm not going to relitigate the Corbyn years because of we do not have time. But only because I think for somebody my age, a lot of the problems you describe in the book in terms of austerity, Brexit... Part of the reason Corbyn was, I think, so popular, uh, certainly initially, and a big part of the reason I think he won the Labour leadership, is because it was the first time I felt I wasn't being gaslit about the 2008 financial crisis. Mm. We'd spent years hearing that it was a result of excess public spending. And so if Corbyn... Is it surely not a failure of the entire rest of British politics? that nobody else was saying any, off, making any sort of offering to the sort of post-2008 financial crisis generation.
2: Yeah, I, I think Ed Miliband would dispute the idea that no one had challenged the, the, the Tory narrative, but Corbyn certainly seemed to offer up something very new and very fresh, and that was the work of the people around him. So what that chapter explains is really how his great tragedy was that he was a representative of something very attractive, but... As an individual, he was almost supremely ill-equipped to actually deliver it. So you saw it this week, uh, and here's a phrase I don't say very often, but on Piers Morgan's program, are they a terror group? Everybody knows what they are. Are they a group. terror group? Look, um, Piers, can, can you say
1: have, it? Piers, can we have a discussion? can you say it? Can we have a discussion? Can you call them a terror Piers, group? Jeremy? Can we have a discussion? Can you call them a terror Piers? group? Is it possible to have a rational discussion Are you with prepared you? to call is Hamas a have, terror group? Is it possible to have a rational you can't, discussion can he? with
2: you? And he couldn't do it, which is fine if you're a backbencher, but if you're going to win an election in the country I describe in the book, you simply can't bring that level of baggage to the table. And the people that put him in charge, in position, chiefly John Lansman at, at Momentum, they they they, they kind of knew that he was an empty vessel they thought they could pour what they wanted into him and he would then become the the, the 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 leader of it's not even hard left compared to most of northern europe but compared to the recent history of british politics it is but you can't you, you need two things you, you need to be you need to be likable and winning and all of the people that really like corbyn are the people that never saw him being interviewed by Christian and guru murphy quite early on in channel 4 news or haven't seen what happened on Um, Morgan's show the other night, he was always petulant, thin-skinned, petulant, arrogant, and not very bright. So it doesn't matter how beautiful the policy offer is, by the time you come to the 2019 election, and somebody somewhere had to try to stand against the unconscionable Boris Johnson, we as a country ended up with the unelectable Jeremy Corbyn, and that is part of the national tragedy. After the 2017 result, he started believing his own hype. He he drank the Kool-Aid of his own sort of cultish support, which was a shame. But I, I defy anyone not to um, have their head turned by that. But the 2017 result was all about Brexit. That was people thinking this is our last chance to possibly press pause, maybe to measure twice, cut once, possibly even to um, have another referendum. And obviously by 2019, everyone had realised that ship had sailed. And part of the reason why it sailed is because Corbyn never really campaigned for for for, for Remain and certainly never did anything after the result came in to to give genuine hope to people who realised that becoming the first population in history to vote to impose economic sanctions on itself was a very stupid thing to do.
1: Isn't that more to do with a wider failure that's born out of all of the things you talk about elsewhere in the book in terms of the press media? The idea that every single Labour leader that's been put up in the last 13 years has been found to be too left-wing, can't eat a bacon sandwich.
2: Yeah, but but there's a big difference between can't eat a bacon sandwich and invited IRA terrorists for tea on the House of Commons or put a warm emoji on a on a um, Facebook post of a profoundly and obviously anti-Semitic mural or wrote a forward for a book that is virulently and obviously anti-Semitic or has previously described Hamas as his friends in the past and then not been entirely honest about the circumstances in which that happened. And that's the point, Nish, is that... In order to resist the kind of environment that would describe Ed Miliband's dead father yeah. as the man who hated Britain, the last thing you can be is 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 petulant and and resentful. You've yeah. either you've either got to be incredibly um emollient, you know, soothing, ignoring it, letting it all wash over you, or you've got to be incredibly effective at pushing back against it. To sit there surrounding yourself only with people who agree with you, and avoiding proper scrutiny and interview with people who are just going to be objective in their inquiries. Watch the interview with Krishna? I mean, you know, that's Channel 4 News. That's supposed to be a bastion of leftism, and he he can't keep a lid on his temper even there.
0: I wanted to ask you, you have to argue with people all the time. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but genuinely, like... I feel stressed when I listen to your show. Do you meditate? Like, what, what is this secret that you have?
2: I'm very zen these days. I didn't used to be. I had a ton of therapy about five or six years ago for a bunch of reasons that I wrote about in the book before this one, actually. Yeah. But um, it's not quite like it was. People who watch the clips think I'm still butting heads with everybody. But, in fact, there's not a lot to butt heads about anymore. If you think about the three key issues, which I, I kind of cut my teeth on, it would be brexit boris johnson and donald trump and i think it's fair to say that i've been fairly well vindicated by events on on the fact that all three of those were very very bad ideas so i don't get the calls i used to get in 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 that sense but when it comes to having a you know a, a, a frank exchange of views I I I I just love it. I you know I, I want to, I'll ask you a question until we get to the heart of the issue, and then if you can't answer that question, I'll relish the silence <laughs> on the other end of the <laughs> on the other end of the phone line.
1: I want to ask you something, just because I think there's like a vague, loose parallel between us in that post 2016, post Brexit, post Trump, there was a kind of explosion of interest in political commentary and comedy mm. that engaged with the news from somewhere from the left, centre-left to the broad left. There was a kind of I- I level of interest. I felt in my career a, an upswing yeah. in terms of the like level of, of attention. And I sometimes feel like are you and me disaster capitalists? Yes. <laughs> like, I, I, yeah. do, do you, yeah, really, do you really I get do. that feeling sometimes?
2: Yeah, of course. It's good for business, bad for the soul, <laughs> yeah. is how i describe it. But it, it, i tell you, I, I mean, and you'll be the same, you know this, is we're not faking it. But if we were trying to move into that space cynically or, or, or dishonestly or greedily, then I hope the kind of people who like our work would, would see through us like a plate glass window. So, yeah, I would rather and this is a misused word, but as someone who is patriotic in the in the simplest, in the purest sense of the word, I would rather that my career had stayed in third gear and my country had stayed sane.
1: Yeah. I, I say that to people and they can't believe they They,
2: they, won't, you, you know, they won't believe it. Are you
0: familiar with the dating app Hinge?
2: Only by reputation, <laughs> yeah. But basically
0: the slogan <laughs> is designed to be deleted. This idea yes. is it's so good and then obviously you oh, meet yeah, someone you're right, yeah, And yeah. in a way you could say your career's, are to be
2: deleted. <laughs> Isn't it designed to be cancelled? Uh, <laughs> destined. No, I'd, I'd happily, I'd happily in, in, endure a, a, a downturn in my fortunes if it was an upturn for the for the country for democracy.
1: So look, before we get into heroes and villains as if to sort of illustrate the point about the speed of things Um, Rishi Sunak has just uh, given a press conference uh, where he said that he will pass an emergency law saying that Rwanda is a safe country and therefore will not let the European Court of Human Rights block deportation flights he said that he doesn't agree with the Supreme Court decision but he accepts it and respects it then he says the rule of law is fundamental in this country but he says he's going to introduce emergency legislation, which will assert that Rwanda is safe. Now, the Guardian has made the connection that this is a suggestion that was floated in a Daily Mail column. So again, mm. your your book is coming true. Like, I mean, your you, you, your your book has been clearly illustrated by this because yep. Johnson in uh, back in June used his Daily Mail column. Editor-in-chief of the Daily Mail group is, of course, Paul Dacre, uh, to say that the way to end the legal blockade in Rwanda uh, would be to designate it as a safe country.
0: I honestly don't understand. I don't understand how we can do that.
2: Well the, the, My immediate reaction is they're saying, I believe this, but I don't. I don't yeah. believe that, but I don't, but I do, and I don't, and I do, but I don't, but I do. I think, and this is off the top of my head, so forgive me if I get it all horribly wrong. Um you can you can change the British law in order to designate Rwanda a safe country, but you'll still be an obvious breach of so there's two problems with that. You'll still be an obvious breach of international law. So you're essentially stepping out of the network of obligations and laws that protects civilization. And I'm pretty certain that they'd have to get it through the House of Lords. So good luck with that. Even though they've got um David Cameron, I suppose, they've added to the benches this week. I can't see David Cameron being comfortable Mm. with any attempt to... You can't say, and this is very Johnson-ish, you can't say we respect the rule of law while simultaneously subverting it. So those are the two most obvious problems, is that we would be stepping into a kind of international no-man's land, legally speaking, And we're not the only country in the world that's got problems with refugees or asylum seekers, political problems as well as perceived problems. And the second bit is they'd have
1: to get it through the House of Lords. And they wouldn't. They couldn't. But Sunak is also so venal and spineless. You've got a Prime Minister who essentially is, because he has no mandate, is essentially completely being puppet-mastered by the fringes of his party, essentially.
2: Well, it's always a possibility. I thought this week, earlier this week, that he might be just... Um, cutting his losses and deciding to go into the next general election at least being true to whatever his principles are yeah. so, right. he got, so he got rid of Braverman and put Estimate Vay in a non-existent we pretend thought, job yeah the minister for
1: pushing woke G- people
2: G- over Gammon Maypoles <laughs> yeah. he was kind of um, uh, you know the the c- calling time on the culture wars this this, I, I I I don't know I think that 24 hours from now the conversation might sound slightly different I cannot see how a government seeks to uh, subvert really never mind avoid some really important international supranational legislation
0: like you said nish just just two days ago we were talking about perhaps the real rishi sunak has finally yeah, arrived yeah. and maybe he's more to the center than we thought but it's uh yeah he's quite scary in, in some respects because the fact that you don't know what he believes yes, is, exactly. is even more chill- you should put him in the book
1: Uh, James is kindly staying with us uh, for a few more minutes to help us pick a uh, hero and villain of the week. Uh, James, I feel like you're someone who's never short of a villain. You've written a whole book full of them. Uh, who would you go for?
2: Andrea Jenkins, actually. Dame. Dame Andrea Jenkins, as, as, as she is now, who wrote a letter of no confidence in Rishi Sunak that was both close to illiterate. <laughs> and she was an education minister for 10 minutes um, during that curious Johnson Trust Handover Edu- yeah. education
1: minister. She's the one who famously yeah well, yeah yeah that that is one of the indelible images of uh, the Johnson administration. Yeah. There were bo- protesters booing outside Ted Downing Street, and she uh, she flipped them off. She, she did flip run. them
2: off, and and then got a, 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 utterly probably the most inexplicable damehood in the history of damehood as, a, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a, presumably as a reward for whatever it was she did for Boris Johnson. But I, I find that combination of ignorance, arrogance and entitlement. Mm. Absolutely fascinating in a in a grim laboratory conditions kind of way. How how she can think that she's a player or bright or any of those things and then write down on paper incontrovertible evidence of how stupid she is and not and still not notice is is a source of never ending wonder to me. <laughs> I
0: mean Nish that's a, that's, a that's, a good, that's a pretty good. That's <laughs> a pretty good. That's a pretty good.
1: My choice uh, is um, is ITV for one simple reason. In fact, not one simple reason. One point five million reasons. Uh, uh, they have allegedly paid one and a half million pounds into the opportunistic, money grubbing hands of Nigel Farage in exchange uh, for him appearing on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Farage is going to be on the show this year, um, following on from uh, Matt Hancock of the phrase, another catastrophic error by Health Secretary Matt Hancock, uh, appearance, his appearance <laughs> last year. But it's uh, let's just listen to a bit of Farage. People ask me, why are you going into the jungle? Well, it's very simple. Number one, big new audience to talk to. Number two, proper test. Am I up to it? And number three, I've got to tell you, the money's really good. And what is wrong with that? Here's what's wrong with that. (laughs) It's a long list of reasons. The the reason I'm picking ITV and not Farage is because, once again, this is an example of enabling and effectively, for want of a better term, fun-washing a deeply, deeply unpleasant, vile man who's propagated some of the most hard right, conspiracy theories. And I mean, for better or worse, absolutely for worse, Nigel Farage ultimately is the most significant and influential politician of the last 15 years in British politics, maybe this century in British politics, because he has essentially called the tune that the Conservative Party has danced to because of their fear of him on the right flank. And now the, the man who stood in front of a Breaking Point poster, which was... It, eerily reminiscent of 1930s Nazi propaganda, is now going in to a fun reality show where he gets to eat bugs and present himself as being a relaxed, fun guy. Various comedy entertainment shows, namely Have I Got News For You, were guilty of doing this with Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg and no lessons are being learned. (laughs) Uh, James, Nigel Farage obviously is one of the chapters in the book. I've just realised we hadn't
2: mentioned that one, had we? That's amazing. That's
1: astonishing. It's always just like we've sort of moved towards this dreadful, shit-covered pinnacle. of. What, how, how do you feel hearing that he's going into, into the jungle? I try not to feel anything, actually. Yeah.
2: But I, I do think it might prove to be significant. You know, people like him because they don't know the stuff about uh, collaborating with Alex Jones long after Alex Jones called the Sandy Hook parents actors and, uh, and and frauds, and they don't know about the stuff he said about the Jewish lobby in America yeah. or, or his associations in the past with some profoundly far-right people. They probably do know about his hero worship of Enoch Powell. So it's grim. I think you're right to pick ITV instead of, instead of picking him. I hope that it is... Um, part of his slightly unexpected journey into light entertainment because, awful though that would be, it would be better in many ways than a return to politics.
0: But, I mean, you know, you said with your book you want them to wear their crimes, so to speak.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd, I'd much rather he got, I don't know, strung up from a palm tree. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Metaphorically speaking, of course, um, and there might be a couple of people in there. But it's very hard to think of people who've gone on to I'm a Celebrity
1: and have trashed their reputations. Most people come out with their reputations enhanced. The concern that I have is that Farage goes into the jungle, he you know, emerges once again as a sort of avuncular yeah. figure yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than a dangerous, divisive, far-right politician who I think has done more damage to this country than anybody else. Mm. But he and then relaunches it as a pad to... I, I mean, yeah, I can't, you can't rule anything out. He is shameless. He
2: is utterly and entirely without shame, and therefore... You can never rule anything out, and I, and I do I do think ITV have I wonder I wondered a bit about Anton Deck actually, and because they're not stupid, no. and they're not politically disengaged, and one presumes that they would be as repulsed by elements of Farage's shtick as uh, yeah. as all decent people are. And and I, I wondered whether any of it would tarnish their reputation, but I, I suspect not.
1: Let's finish on a positive note. James, have you got anyone to nominate uh, as a Hero of the Week?
2: i got a Hero of the Week. I don't know that I have. That's how bleak everything is at the moment. Um, I'm going to pick Stuart Lee because um, he's my hero every week. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And he very, very unexpectedly agreed to... Um, uh, interview me on stage for 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 the London leg of my book tour, and I think it was probably the best night of my career. <laughs> so that's it. It's pathetic, selfish, no, it's not conceited, self-referential. But no, he's and, and he of course is someone that never stops, just like you, Nish, never tires of of um, somehow managing to combine comedy with a critique of just how bloody awful everything is.
1: Yes, well, he's a he's a comedic icon, and I I think he would not enjoy the term. Beloved elder statesman, which is why I'm going to call him a beloved it. elder statesman. You hate it.
0: <laughs> so the the convention on this show, James, is that normally I will pick the hero, and you know that moment there where you thought, oh, who who could I pick? Mm. They're in short supply. You're right; they are sort of in short supply. So increasingly, I've just been uh, just pushing the boundaries of what a single hero is yes. to be groups of people. Collective heroes, see what I'm doing. And so this week we've got another one of those because my hero are foster parents. Okay. So uh, fostering adoption, the situation with children in care is something that I hope we'll be able to talk about on this show more deeply. But in a nutshell, it's a bleak picture. It's been getting worse for some time. We're expecting the latest figures for this year to be released Well, hopefully on the day this podcast comes out, but all the murmurs are, is it going to be worse than last year? Uh, Last year, over 80,000 children were in care. um, Waiting times for a secure placement is extremely high. Campaigners have called it a national child protection emergency. There's also the issue of declining numbers of foster parents, not to mention lack of funding. The children who wait longest for placements tend to be black children, siblings and kids with additional mental or physical need. And annoyingly, that's more than annoying, really. It just doesn't seem to be on the agenda for any Mm. of the main politicians. Uh, It's not in any manifestos. It doesn't seem to be a priority. um, And I think that's really, really sad. It's a systemic failure. Let's be frank about it. And and so many children enter care because of of poverty. Um, But nonetheless... Some foster parents are still doing it, even though it's there's so many hurdles to to cross. They they still provide this amazing service. Um, so there are 44,000 foster families in England looking after 57,000 children. Just above. I mean, look, every single family deserves to be our hero of the week. I did find one case study um, from Plymouth. Uh, a lady Hang on, from,
2: but can I just withdraw my nomination, please? <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's hard to top foster families, is Jesus, I mean, I've been
2: ambushed. I mean,
0: they're so brilliant. Um, I Look, I, I would love to have, if I could, I would read out the names of the 44,000 foster families, but I don't have them. But I, yeah, as I say, I came across one lovely case study just recently last week, a family based in Plymouth talked to the BBC. Uh, a lady called Michelle and her husband decided to foster before they had their own children. They've now got two of their own children, eight and 11 years old. She said her two biological children have had to become young carers. She doesn't beat around the bush. Here. You know, like mm. it is hard. Of course it is hard. But she has a beautiful family now, a mixed family. Um a, her eleven-year-old Erin said it was really nice to have her foster sister around. She said she helps me with my homework if I ask for it, and she's always there for me when I'm feeling sad. Michelle said being a foster parent brings joy to her life every single day. So all the foster parents of Britain, you are our hero. Yeah.
1: And you pick Stuart Lee Leigh- <laughs> if you a video about your book. Jeez just Fucking awful Yeah, hell no. man the conscience of liberal Britain <laughs> just, that's yes. what the new so, statesman called you this is a new low <laughs> 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 that was very very lovely um, that's all we've got time for this week uh, before we go massive thank you to James O'Brien our guest for joining us yes, yeah. thank uh, you uh, so, so much giving us so generously of your me. time thank you
0: and uh, just a reminder his new book How They Break Britain is out now am I right now? oh yes in all good bookshops
1: and mediocre ones. <laughs> you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at uk. We love hearing your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 Internationally, that's plus plus four four
0: seven We'd love to get your thoughts on what we've discussed on this episode, or you can send in a question about British politics, or just suggest something you'd like us to cover.
1: Podsafe the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media.
0: Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop, with additional production support from Annie Keats Thorpe.
1: Video editing was by Will Darkin and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos.
0: Thanks to our engineer, David Degahi.
1: The executive producers are Anishka Sharma, Dan Jackson and Madeleine Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz.
0: Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram where we're Pod Save the UK, all one word.
1: Hit subscribe for new shows on Thursday on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.